Queen Lucia by E. F. Benson. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Eleven. The manoeuvres of the next week became so bewilderingly complicated that by Wednesday Georgie was almost thinking of going away to the seaside with Foljambi and Dicky in sheer despair, and in after years he could not, without great mental effort, succeed in straightening it all out, and the effort caused quite a buzzing in his head. That Sunday evening Lucia sent an invitation to Lady Ambermere for dinner and tableau, to which Lady Ambermere's people replied by telephone on Monday afternoon that her ladyship was sorry to be unable. Lucia therefore gave up the idea of a dinner party, and reverted to her original scheme of an evening party like Olga's, got up on the spur of the moment, with great care and most anxious preparation. The rehearsals for the impromptu tableau, meantime, went steadily forward behind closed doors, and Georgie wrestled with twenty bars of the music of the Awakening of Brunhilde. Lucia intended to ask nobody until Friday evening, and Olga should see what sort of party Rysam could raise at a moment's notice. Early on Tuesday morning the devil entered into Daisy Quantock, probably by means of subconscious telepathy, and she proceeded to go round the green at the morning parliament and ask everybody to come in for a good romp on Saturday evening, and they all accepted. Georgie, Lucia and Olga were absentees, and so making a house-to-house -house visitation she went first to Georgie. He, with his secret knowledge of the tableau, indeed he was stitching himself a robe to be worn by King Cafetua at the time, and hastily bundling it under the table, regretted that he was already engaged. This was rather mysterious, but he might have planned, for all Mrs. Quantock knew, an evening when he would be busy indoors, and since those evenings were never to be pried upon, she asked no questions, but went off to Lucia's to give her invitation there. There again she was met with a similarly mysterious refusal. Lucia much regretted that she and Peppino were unable to come, and she hoped Daisy would have a lovely party. Even as she spoke, she heard her telephone bell ringing, and hurried off to find that Georgie, faithful lieutenant, was acquainting her with the fact that Mrs. Quantock was planning a party for Saturday. He did not know how far she had got. At that moment she had got just halfway to Old Place, walking at unusual speed. Lucia grasped the situation with amazing quickness, and cutting off Georgie with a snap, she abandoned all idea of her party being impromptu, and rang up Olga. She would secure her anyhow. The telephone was in the hall, and Olga, with her hat on, was just preparing to go out when the bell sounded. The words of grateful acceptance were on her very lips when her front doorbell rang too. Very long and insistently and had hardly left off when it began again. Olga opened the door herself, and there was Mrs. Quantock on the doorstep with her invitation for Saturday night. She was obliged to refuse, but promised to look in if she was not very late in getting away from Mrs. Lucas, and pop went the cat out of the bag. Another romp would be lovely. Already the evils of decentralization and overlapping were becoming manifest. Lucia rang up house after house, only to find that its inhabitants were already engaged. 
She had got Olga and Georgie, and could begin the good work of education and the crushing of rivalry, not by force, but by pure and refined example, but Mrs. Quantock had got everybody else. In the old days this could never have happened, for everything devolved round one central body. Now, with the appearance of this other great star, all the known laws of gravity and attraction were upset. Georgie, again summoned to the telephone, recommended an appeal to Mrs. Quantock's better nature, which Lucia rejected, doubting whether she had one. But what about the tableau? asked Georgie. We three can't very well do tableau for Miss Olga to look at. Then Lucia showed herself truly great. The merit of tableau does not consist in the number of the audience, she said. She paused a moment. Have you got the cafetua robe to set properly? she asked. Oh, it'll do, said Georgie dejectedly. On Tuesday afternoon, Olga rang up Lucia again to say that her husband was arriving that day, so might she bring him on Saturday. To this Lucia cordially assented but she felt that a husband and wife sitting together and looking at another husband and wife doing tableau would be an unusual entertainment and not characteristic of Rhizome's best. She began to waver about the tableau and to consider dinner instead. She also wondered whether she had been wronging dear Daisy and whether she had a better nature after all. Perhaps Georgie might ascertain. Georgie was roused from a little fatigued nap by the telephone, for he had fallen asleep over King Cafetua's robe. Lucia explained the situation and delicately suggested that it would be so easy for him to pop in to dear Daisy's and be very diplomatic. There was nobody like Georgie for tact. So with a heavy yawn he popped in. You've come about this business on Saturday, said Daisy unerringly, haven't you? Georgie remembered his character for tact. How wonderful of you to guess that, he said. I thought we might see if we couldn't arrange something, if we put our heads together. It's such a pity to split up. We, I mean Lucia, has got Miss Olga and her husband coming, and... And I've got everybody else, said Daisy brightly, and Miss Braceley is coming over here if she gets away early. Probably with such a small party she will. Oh, I shouldn't count on that, said he. We are having some tableau, and they always take longer than you think. Dear me, I shouldn't have said that, as they were to be impromptu, but I really believe my head is going. You know how thorough Lucia is. She is taking a great deal of trouble about them. I hadn't heard about that, said Mrs. Quantock. She thought a moment. Well, I don't want to spoil Lucia's evening, she said, for I'm sure nothing could be so ridiculous as three people doing tableau for two others. And, on the other hand, I don't want her to spoil mine, for what's to prevent her going on with the tableau till church time next morning, if she wishes, to keep Miss Braceley away from my house? I'm sure after the way she behaved about my guru, well, never mind that, how would it be if we had the tableau first at Lucia's, and then came on here? If Lucia cares to suggest that to me, and my guests consent, I don't mind doing that. By six o'clock on Tuesday evening, therefore, all the telephone bells of Rhizome were merrily ringing again. Mrs. Quantock stipulated that Lucia's party should end at 10.45 precisely, if it didn't end before, and that everyone should then be free to flock across to her house. She proposed a romp that should even outshine Olga's, 
and was deep in the study of a manual of round games, which included Hunt the Slipper. Georgie and Peppino took turns at the telephone, ringing up all Mrs. Quantock's guests, and informing them of the double pleasure which awaited them on Saturday. Since Georgie had let out the secret of the impromptu tableau to Mrs. Quantock, there was no reason why the rest of Rhizome should not learn of this first hand from the Hurst, instead of second hand, with promises not to repeat it, from Mrs. Quantock. It appeared that she had a better nature than Lucia credited her with, but to expect her not to tell everybody about the tableau would be putting virtue to an unfair test. So that's all settled, said Georgie, as he returned with the last acceptance, and how fortunately it has happened after all. But what a day it has been, nothing but telephoning from morning till night. If we go on like this, the company will pay a dividend this year and return us some of our own pennies. Lucia had a quantity of pearl beads and was stringing them for the tableau of Mary Queen of Scots. Now that everyone knows, she said, we might allow ourselves a little more elaboration in our preparations. There is an Elizabethan axe at the Ambermere Arms, which I might borrow for Peppino. Then about the Brunhilde tableau. It is dawn, is it not? We might have the stage quite dark when the curtain goes up, and turn up a lamp very slowly behind the scene, so that it shines on my face. A lamp being turned up very slowly is wonderfully effective. It produces a perfect illusion. Could you manage that with one hand and play the music of the awakening with the other, Giorgino? I'm quite sure I couldn't, said he. Well then, Peppino must do it before he comes on. We will have movement in this tableau. I think that will be quite a new idea. Peppino shall come in just two steps when he has turned the lamp up, and he will take off my shield and armour. But the music will never last out, cried Georgie. I shall have to start earlier. Yes, perhaps that would be better, said Lucia calmly. That real piece of chain armour, too. I am glad I remembered Peppino had that. Marshall is cleaning it now, and it will give a far finer effect than the tawdry stuff they use in opera. Then I sit up very slowly and wave first my right arm, and then my left, and then both. I should like to practice that now on the sofa. Lucia had just lain down when the telephone sounded again, and Georgie got up. That's to announce a dividend, he said, and tripped into the hall. Is that Mrs. Lucas? said a voice he knew. Yes, Miss Olga, he said, and this is me. Oh, Georgie, how fortunate, she said. You can give my message now to Mrs. Lucas, can't you? I'm a perfect fool, you know, and horribly forgetful. What's the matter? asked Georgie faintly. It's about Saturday. I've just remembered that Georgie and I, not you, you know, are going away for the weekend. Will you tell Mrs. Lucas how sorry I am? Georgie went back to the music room where Lucia had just got both her arms waving, but at the sight of his face she dropped them and took a firm hold of herself. Well, what is it? she said. Georgie gave the message, and she got off the sofa, rising to her feet, while her mind rose to the occasion. I am sorry that Miss Braceley will not see our tableau, she said, but as she was not acting in them, I do not know that it makes much difference. A deadly flatness, although Olga's absence made no difference, descended on the three. 
Lucia did not resume her arm-work, for after all these years her acting might be supposed to be good enough for Rhizum without further practice. And nothing more was heard of the borrowing of the axe from the Ambermere arms. But having begun to thread her pearl beads, she finished them. Georgie, however, cared no longer whether the gold border of King Cafetua's mantle went quite round the back or not, and having tacked on the piece he was working at, rolled it up. It was just going to be an ordinary party after all. His cup was empty. But Lucia's was not yet quite full, for at this moment Miss Lyle's pony hip-bath stopped at the gate, and a small stable-boy presented a note which required an answer. In spite of all Lucia's self-control, the immediate answer it got was a flush of heightened colour. Mere impertinence, she said. I will read it aloud. Dear Mrs. Lucas, I was in Rhizome this morning, and learned from Mrs. Weston that Miss Braceley will be at your house on Saturday night, so I shall be enchanted to come to dinner after all. You must know that I make a rule of not going out in the evening, except for some special reason, but it would be a great pleasure to hear her sing again. I wonder if you would have dinner at seven-thirty instead of eight, as I do not like being out very late. There was a short pause. Caro said Lucia, trembling violently. Perhaps you would kindly tell Miss Lyle that I do not expect Miss Braceley on Saturday, and that I do not expect Lady Ambermere either. My dear, he began, I will do it myself then, she said. It was as Georgie walked home after the delivery of this message that he wanted to fly away and be at rest with Foljambi and Dicky. He had been frantically excited ever since Sunday at the idea of doing tableau before Olga, and today, in especial, had been a mere feverish hash of telephoning and sewing, which all ended in nothing at all, for neither tableau nor romps seemed to hold the least attraction for him, now that Olga was not going to be there. And then, all at once, it dawned on him that he must be in love with Olga, for why else should her presence or absence make such an astounding difference to him? He stopped dead opposite Mrs. Quantock's mulberry tree. More misery, more unhappiness, he said to himself. Really, if life at Rhizome was to become a series of agitated days, ending in devastating discoveries, the sooner he went away with Foljambi and Dicky, the better. He did not quite know what it was like to be in love, for the nearest he had previously ever got to it was when he saw Olga awake on the mountaintop, and felt that he had missed his vocation in not being Siegfried. But from that he guessed. This time, too, it was about Olga, not about her as framed in the romance of legend and song, but of her as she appeared at Rhizome, taking, as she did now, an ecstatic interest in the affairs of the place. So short a time ago, when she contemplated coming here first, she had spoken of it as a lazy backwater. Now she knew better than that, for she could listen to Mrs. Weston far longer than anybody else, and ask for more histories when even she had run dry. And yet Lucia seemed hardly to interest her at all. Georgie wondered why that was. He raised his eyes as he muttered these desolated syllables, and there was Olga just letting herself out of the front garden of the old place. George's first impulse was to affect not to see her, and turn into his bachelor house, but she had certainly seen him, and made so shrill and piercing a whistle on her fingers that, pretend as he would not to have seen her, 
It was ludicrous to appear not to have heard her. She beckoned him. Georgie, the most awful thing has happened, she said, as they came within speaking distance. Oh, I called you Georgie by mistake then. When one does that, one must go on doing it on purpose. Guess, she said, in the best Rhizome manner. You can come to Lucia's party after all, said he. No, I can't. Well, you'll never guess, because you move in such high circles. So I'll tell you. Mrs. Weston's Elizabeth is going to be married to Colonel Boucher's Atkinson. I don't know his Christian name, nor her surname, but they're the ones. You don't say so, said Georgie, stung for a moment out of his own troubles. But will they both leave? What will either of the others do? Mrs. Weston can't have a manservant, and how on earth is she to get on without Elizabeth? Besides, a faint flush mounted to his cheek. I know, you mean babies, said Olga ruthlessly, didn't you? Yes, said Georgie. Then why not say so? You and I were babies once, though no one is old enough to remember that, and we shouldn't have liked our parents and friends to have blushed when they mentioned us. Georgie, you are a prude. No, I'm not, said Georgie, remembering he was probably in love with a married woman. It doesn't matter whether you are or not. Now there's only one thing that can happen to Mrs. Weston and the Colonel. They must marry each other too. Then Atkinson can continue to be Colonel Boucher's man, and Elizabeth the parlour-maid, unless she is busy with what made you blush. Then they can get help in. You will lend them Foljambi, for instance. It's time you began to be of some good in your wicked, selfish life. So, that's settled. It only remains for us to make them marry each other. Aren't you getting on rather fast? asked Georgie. I'm not getting on at all at present. I'm only talking. Come into my house instantly, and we'll drink vermouth. Vermouth always makes me brilliant, unless it makes me idiotic, but we'll hope for the best. Presently they were seated in Olga's music-room with a bottle of vermouth between them. Now drink fair, Georgie, she said, and as you drink, tell me all about the young people's emotional history. Atkinson and Elizabeth, asked Georgie. No, my dear, Colonel Boucher and Mrs. Weston. They have an emotional history. I am sure you all thought they were going to marry each other once. And they constantly dine together tete-a-tete. Now that's a very good start. Are you quite sure he hasn't got a wife and family in Egypt, or she a husband and family somewhere else? I don't want to rake up family skeletons. I've never heard of them, said Georgie. Then we'll take them as non-existent. You certainly would have heard of them if there were any, and very likely if there weren't. And they both like eating, drinking, and the latest intelligence, don't they? Yes, but... But what? What more do you or they want? Isn't that a better start for married life than many people get? But aren't they rather old? asked Georgie. Not much older than you and me, and if it wasn't that I've got my own Georgie, I would soon have somebody else's. Do you know who I mean? No, said Georgie firmly. Though all this came at the end of a most harrowing day, it or the vermouth exhilarated him. Then I'll tell you just what Mrs. Weston told me. He's always been devoted to Lucia, said Mrs. Weston, and he has never looked at anybody else. There was Piggy Antrobus. Now do you know who I mean? Georgie suddenly giggled. Yes, he said. Then don't talk about yourself so much, my dear, and let us get to the point. Now, 
This afternoon I dropped in to see Mrs. Weston, and as she was telling me about the tragedy, she said by accident, just as I called you Georgie just now by accident, and I don't know what Jacob will do without Atkinson. Now, is or is not Colonel Boucher's name Jacob? There you are, then. That's one side of the question. She called him Jacob by accident, and so she'll call him Jacob on purpose before very long. Olga nodded her head up and down in precise reproduction of Mrs. Weston. I'd hardly got out of the house, she said, in exact imitation of Mrs. Weston's voice, before I met Colonel Boucher. It would have been about three o'clock. No, it couldn't have been three, because I had got back home and was standing in the hall when it struck three, and my clock's a shade fast, if anything. Well, Colonel Boucher said to me, Oh, hum, quite a domestic crisis, by Jove. And so I pretended I didn't know, and then he told me all about it. So I said, well, it is a domestic crisis, and you'll lose Atkinson. Oh, hum, said he, and poor Jane, I should say, Mrs. Weston, will lose Elizabeth. There. She got up and lit a cigarette. Oh, Georgie, do you grasp the inwardness of that, she said. Their dear old hearts were laid bare by the trouble that had come upon them and each of them spoke of the other as each felt for the other. Probably neither of them had said Jacob or Jane in the whole course of their lives, but the angel of the Lord descended and troubled the waters. If you think that's profane, have some more vermouth. It's making me brilliant, though you wouldn't have thought it. Now, listen. She sat down again close to him, her face brimming with a humorous enthusiasm. Humour in Rhizome was apt to be a little unkind. If you mentioned the absurdities of your friends, there was just a speck of malice in your wit. But with her there was none of that. She gave an imitation of Mrs. Weston with the most ruthless fidelity, and yet it was kindly to the bottom. She liked her for talking in that emphatic voice and being so particular as to what time it was. Now, first of all, you are coming to dine with me tonight, said Olga. Oh, I'm afraid that tonight, began Georgie, shrinking from any further complications. He really must have a quiet evening and go to bed very early. What are you afraid of tonight? she asked. You're only going to wash your hair. You can do that tomorrow. So, you and I, that's two, and Mrs. Weston and Colonel Jacob, that's four, which is enough, and I don't believe there's anything to eat in the house, but there's something to drink, which is my point. Not for you and me, mind. We've got to keep our heads and be clever. Don't have any more vermouth. But Jane and Jacob are going to have quantities of champagne. Not tipsy, you understand, but at their best, and unguardedly appreciative of each other and us. And when they go away, they will exchange a chaste kiss at Mrs. Weston's door, and she will ask him in. No, I think she'll ask him in first. And when they wake up tomorrow morning, they will both wonder how they could possibly and jointly ask themselves what everybody else will say. And then they'll thank God and Olga and Georgie that they did, and live happily for an extraordinary number of years. My dear, how infinitely happier they will be together than they are being now. Funny old dears, each at its own fireside, saying that it's too old, bless them. And you and I will sing voice that breathed our Eden, and in the middle our angel voices will crack, and we will sob into our handkerchief and Eden will be left breathing deeply all by itself like the Guru. Why did you never tell me about the Guru? Mrs. Weston's a better friend to me than you are. And I must ring for my cook. No, I'll telephone first to Jacob and Jane, 
and see what there is to eat afterwards. You will sit here quietly, and when I have finished, I will tell you what your part is. During dinner, according to Olga's plan of campaign, the conversation was to be general, because she hated to have two conversations going on when only four people were present, since she found that she always wanted to join in the other one. This was the main principle she inculcated on Georgie, stamping it on his memory by a simile of peculiar vividness. Imagine there is an Elizabethan spittoon in the middle of the table, she said, and keep on firmly spitting into it. I want you, when there's any pause, to spit about two things. One, how dreadfully unhappy both Jacob and Jane will be without their paragons. The other, how pleasant is conversation and companionship. I shall be chaffing you, mind, all the time, and saying you must get married. After dinner I shall probably stroll in the garden with Jacob. Don't come. Keep him after dinner for some little time, but then's my opportunity of talking to Jane, and give him at least three glasses of port. Gracious, it's time to dress, and the Lord prosperous. Georgie found himself the last to arrive when he got back to Olga's, and all three of them shook hands, rather as people shake hands before a funeral. They went into dinner at once, and Olga instantly began, How many years do you say your admirable Atkinson has been with you? she asked Colonel Boucher. Twenty, getting on for twenty-one, said he. Great nuisance, upon my word, it's worse than a nuisance. Georgie had a bright idea. But what's a nuisance, Colonel, he asked. Eh, haven't you heard? I thought it would have been all over the place by now. Atkinson's going to be married. No, said Georgie. Whom to? Mrs. Weston could not bear not to announce this herself. To my Elizabeth, she said. Elizabeth came to me this morning. May I speak to you a minute, ma'am, she said and I thought nothing more than that perhaps she had broken a teacup. Yes, said I, quite cheerfully, and what have you come to tell me? It was getting almost too tragic, and Olga broke in. Let's try to forget all about it for an hour or two, she said. It was nice of you all to take pity on me and come and have dinner. Otherwise I should have been quite alone. If there's one thing I cannot bear, it's being alone in the evening. And to think that anybody chooses to be alone when he needn't. Look at that wretch there, and she pointed to Georgie, who lives all by himself instead of marrying. Liking to be alone is the worst habit I know, much worse than drink. Now, do leave me alone, said Georgie. I won't, my dear, and when dinner is over, Mrs. Weston and I are going to put our heads together, and when you come out we shall announce to you the name of your bride. I should put a tax of twenty shillings on the pound on all bachelors, they should all marry or starve. Suddenly she turned to Colonel Boucher. Oh, Colonel, she said, what have I been saying? How dreadfully stupid of me not to remember that you were a bachelor too. But I wouldn't have you starve for anything. Have some more fish instantly to show you forgive me. Georgie, change the subject. You're always talking about yourself. Georgie turned with admirable docility to Mrs. Weston. It's too miserable for you, he said. How will you get on without Elizabeth? How long has she been with you? Mrs. Weston went straight back to where she had left off. So I said, what have you come to tell me? Quite cheerfully, thinking it was a teacup. And she said, I'm going to be married, ma'am. And she blushed so prettily that you'd have thought she was a girl of twenty. Though she was seventeen when she came to me, no, she was just eighteen, and that's fifteen years ago, and that makes her thirty-three. Well, Elizabeth, I said, you haven't told me yet who it is, but whether it's the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Prince of Wales, for I felt I had to make a little joke like that, 
I hope you'll make him as happy as you've made me all these years. You old darling, said Olga, I should have gone into hysterics and forbade the bands. No, Miss Bracely, you wouldn't, said Mrs. Weston. You'd have been just as thankful as me that she got a good husband to take care of her and to be taken care of by. Because then she said, Law, ma'am, it's none of they, none of them great folks. It's the Colonel's Atkinson. You ask the Colonel for Atkinson's character, Miss Bracely, and then you'd be just as thankful as I was. The Colonel's Atkinson is a slow coach, just like Georgie, said Olga. He and Elizabeth have been living side by side all these years, and why couldn't the man make up his mind before? The only redeeming circumstance is that he has done it now. Ah, poor Georgie, now. Now you're going to be rude to Colonel Boucher again, said Georgie. Colonel, we've been asked here to be insulted. Colonel Boucher had nothing stronger than a mild tolerance for Georgie, and rather enjoyed snubbing him. Well, if you call a glass of wine in a dinner like this an insult, he said, upon my word, I don't know what you'd call a compliment. I know what I'd call a compliment, said Olga, and that's your all coming to dine with me at such short notice. About George's approaching nuptials now. You're too tarsome, said he. If you go on like that, I shan't ask you to the wedding. Let's talk about Elizabeth's. When are they going to get married, Mrs. Weston? That's what I said to Elizabeth. Get an almanac, Elizabeth, I said, so that you won't choose a Sunday. Don't say the 20th of next month without looking it out. But if the 20th isn't a Sunday or a Friday, mind, for though I don't believe in such things, still you never know. There was Mrs. Antrobus now, said Mrs. Weston, suddenly putting in a footnote to her speech to Elizabeth. It was on a Friday she married, and within a year she got as deaf as you see her now. Then Mr. Weston's uncle, his uncle by marriage, I should say, he was another Friday marriage, and they missed their train when going off on their honeymoon, and had to stay all night where they were, without a sponge or a toothbrush between them, for all their luggage was in the train being whirled away to Torquay. So make it the 20th, Elizabeth, I said, if it isn't a Friday or a Sunday, and I shall have time to look round me, and so will the Colonel, though I don't expect that either of us will find your equals. And don't cry, Elizabeth, I said, for she was getting quite watery, for if you cry about a marriage, what'll be left for a funeral? Ah, upon my word, I call that splendid of you, said the Colonel. I told Atkinson I wished I'd never set eyes on him before I wished him joy. Olga got up. Look after Colonel Boucher, Georgie, she said, and ring for anything you want. Look at the moon, isn't it heavenly? How Atkinson and Elizabeth must be enjoying it. The two men spent a half-hour of only moderately enjoyable conversation, for Georgie kept the grindstone of the misery of his lot without Atkinson, and the pleasure of companionship firmly to the Colonel's nose. It was no use for him to attempt to change the subject to the approaching tableau, to a vague rumour that Piggy had fallen face downwards in the ducking-pond, that Mrs. Quantock and her husband had turned to table this afternoon with remarkable results, for it had tapped out that his name was Robert and hers Daisy. Whichever way he turned, Georgie herded him back onto the stony path that he had been bidden to take, with the result that when Georgie finally permitted him to go into the music-room, he was athirst for the more genial companionship of the ladies. Olga got up as they entered. Georgie's so lazy, she said, that it's no use asking him, but do let you and me have a turn up and down my garden, Colonel. There's a divine moon, and it's quite warm. They stepped out into the windless night. 
Fancy it's being October, she said. I don't believe there is any winter in Rhizome, nor autumn either, for that matter. You're all so young, so deliciously young. Look at Georgie in there. He's like a boy still. And as for Mrs. Weston, she's twenty-five, not a day older. Yes, wonderful woman, said he. Always agreeable and lively. Handsome, too. I consider Mrs. Weston a very handsome woman. Hasn't altered an atom since I knew her. That's the wonderful thing about you all, said she. You were all just as brisk and young as you were ten years ago. It's ridiculous. As for you, I'm not sure that you're not the most ridiculous of the lot. I feel as if I've been having dinner with three delightful cousins a little younger, not much, but just a little, than myself. Gracious, how you all made me romp the other night here. What a pace you go, Colonel. What's your walking like, if you call this a stroll? Colonel Boucher moderated his pace. He thought Olga had been walking so quickly. "'I'm very sorry,' he said. "'Certainly Rhizome is a healthy, bracing place. Perhaps we do keep our youth pretty well. God bless me, but the days go by without one's noticing them. To think that I came here with Atkinson close on ten years ago.' This did very well for Olga. She swiftly switched off onto it. "'It's quite horrid for you losing your servant,' she said. "'Servants do become friends, don't they?' especially to anyone living alone, Georgie and Foljambi now. But I shouldn't be a bit surprised if Foljambi had a mistress before very long. No, really, I thought you were just chaffing him at dinner. Georgie marrying, is he? Ha! His wife will take some of his needlework off his hands. May I, ah, uh, may I inquire the lady's name? Olga decided to play a great card. She had just found it, so to speak, in her hand, and it was most tempting. She stopped. But can't you guess? She said, surely I'm not absolutely on the wrong track. Ah, Miss Antrobus, said he. The one they call Piggy? No, I should say there was nothing in that. Oh, that never occurred to me, said she. I dare say I'm quite wrong. I only judge from what I thought I noticed in poor Georgie. I dare say it's only what he should have done ten years ago. But I fancy there's a spark alive still. Let us talk about something else, though we won't go in quite yet, shall we? She felt quite safe in her apparent reluctance to tell him. The rhizome gluttony for news made it imperative for him to ask her more. Really, I must be very dull, he said. I dare say an eye new to the place she's more. Who is it, Miss Bracely? She laughed. Ah, oh, how bad a man is at observing a man, she said. Didn't you see Georgie at dinner? He hardly took his eyes off her. She had a great and glorious reward. Colonel Boucher's face grew absolutely blank in the moonlight with sheer astonishment. "'Well, you surprise me,' he said. "'Surely a fine woman, though lame, wouldn't look at a needlewoman. Well, leave it at that.' He stamped his feet and put his hands in his pockets. "'It's growing a bit chilly,' he said. "'You'll be catching cold, Miss Bracely, and what will your husband say if he finds out I've been strolling about with you out of doors after dinner?' Yes, we'll go in, she said. It is chilly. How thoughtful you are for me. Georgie, little knowing the cat's paw that had been made of him, found himself being detached from Mrs. Weston by the colonel, and this suited him very well, for presently Olga said she would sing, unless anybody minded, and called on him to accompany her. She stood just behind him, leaning over him sometimes with a hand on his shoulder, and sang three ruthless, simple English songs appropriate to the matter in hand. She sang, 
I attempt from love's sickness to fly, and sally in our alley, and come live with me. And sometimes, beneath the rustle of leaves turned over, she whispered to him, Georgie, I'm cleverer than anybody ever was, and I shall die in the night, she said once. Again, more enigmatically, she said, I've been a cad, but I'll tell you about it when they've gone. Stop behind. And then some whiskey came in, and she insisted on the young people having some of that. Finally, she saw them off at the door, and came running back to Georgie. I've been a cad, she said, because I hinted that you were in love with Mrs. Weston. My dear, it was simply perfect. I believe it to have been the last straw. And if you don't forgive me, you needn't. Wasn't it clever? He simply couldn't stand that, for it came on the top of your being so young. Well, really, said Georgie. I know, and I must be a cad again. I'm going up to my bedroom. You may come too, if you like, because it commands a view of Church Road. I shouldn't sleep a wink unless I knew that he had gone in with her. It'll be precisely like Faust and Marguerite going into the house, and you and I are Mephistopheles and Martha. Come, quick. From the dark of the window they watched Mrs. Weston's bath chair being pushed up the lit road. It's the Colonel pushing it, whispered Olga, squeezing him into a corner of the window. Look, there's Tommy Luton on the path. Now they've stopped at her gate. I can't bear the suspense. Oh, Georgie, they've gone in. And Atkinson will stop, and so will Elizabeth. And you've promised to lend them Foljambi. Which house will they live at, do you think? Aren't you happy? End of chapter